Welcome back, everyone. This is episode 23 of Jointly Venturing Let's Talk World Citizenship. Um, being recorded on a day when um, the world is remembering George Floyd and his untimely 8 minute and 46 second demise black lives matter movement all across the united states and all across the world and remembering also every aboriginal person in australia that has died in custody in the last 30 years which now numbers 437 people we're also speaking on a day in which uh, the united states government officially imposed sanctions on the international criminal court and its staff members, people who work at the International Criminal Court, which of course was established under the Rome Statute in 1998, to create a system of justice for perpetrators of crimes against humanity and war crimes. And now the United States is essentially trying to prohibit any travel by members of the staff of the International Criminal Court to the United States the country which hosts the headquarters of the United Nations and which has done so since 1945. The country that hosted the meeting in San Francisco that led to the establishment of the United Nations and where the United Nations Charter was signed and approved all those years ago. And also the country which is hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars, in arrears to the United Nations based upon the budgetary requirements imposed on all member states of the United Nations. This raises a whole range of really, really important questions regarding the topic of this podcast, which is the whole question of world citizenship and the importance of unity amongst all people everywhere based upon our the obvious shared characteristics of our lives as human beings. And this very tumultuous time is yet another good point in history where we should contemplate whether the system that we've created for ourselves in terms of our governance is truly going to bring out the best in all of us. Is this truly the best economic, political, social governance system that we can come up with, all 7.8 billion of us, or could there even be a better way? Could there be a way which promotes unity, which promotes equality, which helps to end poverty, which helps to promote disarmament, which helps to promote human rights, and which is not grounded on any sort of delusions that one country is necessarily better than the other, or that one gender is better than the other, or one race is better than the other, but that we're all in it together, sharing one planet on which all of us are entirely dependent. Is it not the time to begin contemplating a far better way of organizing ourselves um, politically that is beneficial to the overwhelming majority of human beings? And that's ultimately what this podcast generally is about, and that's what today's episode is about. In today's episode, we're going to talk about one of these real controversial questions that a lot of people still have trouble with, 
even those on the more progressive side of the political spectrum, shall we say. And that's the question of the viability of a world parliamentary system or a world government system. This even, even this term, world government, is used by many people from the right side of the political spectrum as something inherently heinous, something inherently dubious, something inherently dangerous. And we need to address what it actually would mean, what it could actually look like, what are its attributes, and what are its potential um, negative sides. Um, as with all proposals, there are good points, there are bad points, there are things that would work, probably things that wouldn't work. But today we're going to explore the, the nature of that whole question. Can we move towards something more global in nature? Um, and of course, there's a spectrum of approaches that can be taken on this question. So one would be the complete renunciation of all sovereignty by all 196 members of the United Nations into some sort of global structure where states no longer existed. That's obviously the most extreme. But there are hundreds of interim steps that could be taken which are far less dramatic that might be more palatable to more people. And today we are going to discuss these things with uh, John Packer, Frederick John Packer, in fact. And he's the Neuberger, actually in Canada pronounced Neuberger, Jessen Professor of International Conflict Resolution, at the Faculty of Law at the University of Ottawa in Canada. So, John, welcome to Jointly Venturing. Thanks, Scott. Great pleasure to join you. Well, let's move just right into that big topic of a world parliament. Let's start with that. So not so much world citizenship per se or, or, or a, a revised version of the United Nations, but a world parliament. You know, some writers who are generally very global in nature and very humanist in nature um, will go to great lengths expounding the, the commonalities of the human race and the need to move towards a more evolved political system. But when it comes to the question of a world parliament or a world government, um, they stop there and they oppose it. And why do you think that is? Why are people so anxious about the idea of having a government that actually governs the entire human race. There's obviously hundreds of reasons, but what do you think are the main reasons that make people so uncomfortable discussing this idea? Well, this is certainly a huge question, and, and I, I think there are numerous um, influencing elements that explain it. Um, I think like any kind of way in which we organize ourselves and do things, a part of it is simply we do what uh, we have been doing, the, the uh, tendency of habit um, and performing within paradigms or systems that we are taught and we are taught our right. Uh, so part of it is uh, we're, we're basically living in systems that uh, the previous generations have constructed and, and we're continuing them. So that's, a simple kind of explanation mm -hmm. on a social psychological level. I, I think a big part of it is that uh, a lot of people have difficulty imagining um, relationships that exceed the kind of um, borders or, or uh, terms of a country and uh, uh, maybe even smaller than that um, province or 
city, uh, a lot of our county, a lot of our uh, political awareness uh, around the world has been uh, largely connected to locality, to geographic proximity, and to ethnocultural belonging, uh, people like us, near us. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're not only not so aware of, uh, in a kind of social sense, people far away, but we are um, worried about them. The, the big element of the social psychology is fear. And uh, so we are fear, uh, we're fearful of not only that which we don't know, but those who are not of us. Uh, and that's, of course, uh, played upon politically. So that contributes to xenophobia. Um, uh, so, the, I mean, there's a lot of different explanations. Uh, but I, I, I think mainly we've just been taught a number of kind of premises of government that we will be governed well, we will be have our needs addressed, and we will be protected by those who are of us, close to us, uh, and so forth. And part of you know the whole notion of the state for the longest time has been the state as a protector against the other, the outsider, and a provider within. Uh, and whether that's democratic or not is a much separate question, a relatively recent phenomenon. Uh, but for us to kind of escape all of that baggage of hundreds and actually thousands of years and somehow reimagine our relationships in uh, terms of the wholeness of the planet, of the oneness of the environment, of our complex interdependence, that, that's a leap from anything we've been taught, from anything we've generally uh, come to know. Uh, I, I think it's important immediately to notice that uh, that kind of state of mind, uh, which conditions our political um, uh, attitudes, is actually in conflict or in tension with the fact that we are quite complex, interdependent in our real relationships. And we are increasingly seeing it. I think this is one of the challenges of our species today. More and more people we can turn on our multiple information devices, our, our cell phone, our television, or whatever they are, our laptop, and we can immediately see what's going on. We see ourselves, people like us in other parts of the world, experiencing things like us. And so there is some dissonance between the fact of our interdependence and what we've been taught about how to govern ourselves and protect and provide. So I think that's a basic explanation. Uh, simply, we haven't done it before. We've seemingly never managed. Right. And yet, there are many people out there in the world today. I mean, who knows exactly how many, but it's certainly measured in the tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions, who who have made that leap, You know, who have allowed themselves to evolve to the point where they very happily would embrace... Um, a more unified global structure um, in the interests of, you know, ultimately reducing human suffering. So I think, you know, obviously, you know, none of us are really taught in any educational system in the world, um, in any country, no matter how progressive, um, none of us are really taught from day one that, you know, we are world citizens, we are part of the human race, ultimately, we are, um, you know, an integral part of the whole, you know, 
education always starts from the premise of the nation state and one's own local culture and the high points, you know, that happen to find their way into the history books, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but very rarely are we, you know, instructed in our early learning years about our role as world citizens ultimately. So it kind of, you know, in a way it begins with education. Um, uh, absolutely. I mean, if I can just say that yeah, sure. uh, uh, this attitude and um, uh, basic disposition is cultivated uh, from early childhood um, on, on all sorts of things that we're, we hear at home, but also immediately at school when we're asked to uh, sing a national anthem, when, you know, stand before a flag. Uh, so these are inculcated and indoctrinated very early. And there is always, um, as part of this paradigm, the other, right, or others. Mm -hmm. uh, so not only we're not cultivated with a sense of oneness and the globe, but we are decidedly um, indoctrinated with the opposite view that we are, uh, and, and often in, in literally racist terms, that the others are not only different in their taste or maybe their interests, but are literally not like us. And so, I, you know, that, that makes this leap we're talking about very, very difficult to uh, to um, to make. Uh, I, I do agree with you, by the way, that more and more people are making it, but I think there are different kind of categories in which there we could place that awareness. You know, some of it is because more and more people are engaged in transnational or global um, trade, uh, all sorts of uh, elements of human experience, whether it's culture and sport and, and so forth are now operating on a global level. So more and more people are simply getting outside of the boundaries of state and locality. Uh, some of it is because people, you know, there is increasing education. More and more people are looking at the world. Some, some of it is religious um, from, from some, I would mm -hmm. say, progressive religions that are able to think in these terms uh, and promote that. So there's, I think there's different strands of awareness raising going on. Oh, there definitely is. But I think, you know, another, so, you know, if there's an educational obstacle, the other, another one of many, you know, huge obstacles is the misperception, you know, say it again, misperception, that if we are to become world citizens and truly have an interest in what happens everywhere else, as well as to ourselves, that we automatically have to give up a lot. We have to give up our nationality. We have to give up right. our love of our local, you know, smoky barbecue or our Tom Yum salad or whatever, Tom Yum soup, you know, whatever it may be. Um, and, you know, that's, that's absolutely not true. You know, you don't have to give up anything in order to embrace something absolutely. bigger, you know. And we make that point often on the podcast that, you know, you can be – a member of your family, you can be a member of your neighborhood, you can be a member of your bigger community, you can be a member of your town, you can be part of your state, you can be part of your region, you can be part of your country, you can be part of your continental region, and you can be part of the earth all at the same time um, without sacrificing or undermining any um, aspects of any of those levels. And so we need to, you know, get rid of that idea that, uh, you automatically have to give something up. You know, one of the challenges that I come across when I write about these things or, or you know, speak about these things 
where I think there really is, you know, a lot of room for much deeper discussion. And the thing that would really concern me the most, there's obviously the threat of a global dictatorship or a global totalitarian system emerging, right? Which is a very, very, very scary specter. Um, mm -hmm. But that can be guarded against. That can be, you can have designs put in place where that's just made physically impossible. Um, but there are also advantages to the current system in terms of preventing something like that occurring, right? So the various power blocks in the world, for instance, right now, the primary ones obviously are, you know, the United States now is is kind of becoming a, a power block by itself as it continues to alienate all of its allies, even if it remains a member of NATO and things like that. Clearly, you know, the major thrust of their foreign policy is about American interests more than anyone else. And then the European Union and their allies, which continue to be... Uh, a very powerful global force, um, and then China, and then bits and pieces of, of others. And in a way, as good or as bad as those power blocks may be in terms of, you know, reducing human suffering, let's say, um, at least they hold each other in check, you know? So it, it becomes much less likely that you have a complete global domination by one of those groups over the others, right? There is a balance of power that plays itself out. So you can imagine that if things get really bad in, in place X, that you can always then go to place Y where you won't have to encounter those really bad things. Um, in a global system, there would be no place Y to go to because you're already in it. Um, you know, there's essentially no escape. And those things, you know, as maybe unrealistic as they may sound, you know, those are the things that I think will be some of the, the, the issues that will be the most difficult to get over in terms of moving towards something more global in nature. At the same time, as much as I would love it if it wasn't necessary, I just simply cannot see any other possible political way to organize ourselves in a manner that will ensure the continued prosperity and survival of the human race, given the global scale of the problems that we confront. And the most obvious one right now, obviously, is, you know, COVID-19 and all of the aspects of that and other diseases that will emerge um, uh, combined with climate change. So you just take those two things and we could we could expand that list into many other directions. Um, but without global approaches, without unified approaches that are based upon the entire human race, we're going to lose those two battles and and all of the other battles coming in the future and it certainly seems to me that some sort of steps need to be taken in order to go far beyond what the united nations itself is capable of doing right now because that's as close as we get really to a global governance system and even though people may think that it is a global governance system in some ways you could say it is i guess if you're a real firm believer in international law like we are. Um, but at the same time, the General Assembly is simply a bunch of nation states getting together, representing their own interests, generally speaking, um, and meeting for a brief period in September each year, passing resolutions that are only taken seriously by, by a far too small number of countries, and really comes nowhere near um, 
a global parliament that's voted upon by people everywhere through a, a global voting system that would elect, you know, a rotating group of parliamentarians and um, ministers and presidents and prime ministers and things of that nature. Um, so we're nowhere near achieving any sort of uh, real global governance in the formal sense of the term. But I, I simply cannot see ways by which these truly global problems, um, and this is not even starting to discuss the question of the global economy and globalization and trade, etc., just focusing on COVID-19 and, and climate change, there's no possible way those global problems can be solved unless we have a truly global approach. And yet you see already um, in the short period of time that we've had to deal with COVID-19 that you know the countries that are performing the worst are the ones that tend to be the most nationalistic in nature. So there, there's a lot in what you said there. So if you allow, I, I'm going to try and unpack a few things. Totally. Which I think are really relevant. One is the idea of geography. Um, until really the last century, uh, our species was heavily um, determined in their possibilities and their relationships and so forth by geography. Right. Uh, we had to physically, to communicate through distances, we had to physically travel, meet, and intersect with people. Um, the last century, we developed uh, remarkable telecommunications, um, you know, from uh, whether we were able to send cables or whatever we were doing. Um, and now we have this instantaneous global uh, network um, where I don't know how many billions of people can almost instantaneously and simultaneously connect with each other. And they, we don't need to travel. So geography has uh, been overcome in large measures. And our, our political organization is heavily based on geography. Uh, so th this is just one thing to say, because if, if we can escape the um, constraints of geography, uh, then we can start to reimagine our relationships. So, for example... Even in terms of belonging, you mentioned things like nationality and you know the identity elements. Mm -hmm. Actually, a lot of people, their relationship may be closer on the basis of shared philosophy. For example, religious belonging, right, which is not geographic, uh, but it also might be professional. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, scientists in the world share an awful lot in common: worldview, methodology, professional life that is not about geography and not about uh, religion and not about nationality and so forth. So there's a lot of ways just to say that life has evolved now uh, beyond the geographic uh, perception and paradigm. Uh, that raises interesting questions about not just the relationship, but governance, because what one's talking about here is about governance. So uh, now, those systems that we have and that have emerged have been very, very juvenile, I would describe them as, um, where separate geographic entities, we'll use the term polities, whether they are states or whether they were cities, you know, the nation state itself is just a creation of a few hundred years ago. And, you know, Eric Hobsbawm wrote that, you know, we're living through a period of the uh, death throes of the nation. Uh, the state has existed for thousands of years. Um, 
Greek city-states, South China Sea states, and so forth, uh, the state is a structure of um, political governance over people's territory uh, and with some authority, recognized authority. Uh, and that is important. I, I like to think about it more in jurisdictional terms. You mentioned international law. Uh, you know, where is there um, a, a lawful authority over, over competences of, let's say, uh, national security or security or uh, the economy and so forth. For instance, uh, monetary policy, who gets to decide what will be a currency to be used and, mm-hmm. and so forth, the lawful currency. So we can think about that in, 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 again, that's very much geographic, but now I'll suggest to you that even that is being overtaken. Now we have these cryptocurrencies that are not based on state or geography. Uh, you know, so we really have to really stretch our minds now to catch up with the realities of our complex interdependence. Now, if we are talking about governance, though, not only have the current systems been, as I say, relatively juvenile, not very um, uh, developed, uh, but really, as you say, in the United Nations General Assembly, these states, many nation states, many not nation states, by the way, they're states, but they're not a nation by any means. They're mixed up all sorts of representatives, but states, a limited number, a couple hundred, really fairly small in self-interested projections, kind of foreign policy as they would see it, rather than global governance. Mm-hmm. But they have developed quite a few basic systems of governance, for example, trade or, you know, or systems of travel and so forth. We, we rely on them all the time. Sure. Uh, including telecommunications. You know, the, one of the oldest intergovernmental organizations is the International Telecommunications Union, uh, which was really dictated by fact because you needed some system of regulating uh, the uh, telecommunications, specifically radio uh, waves and so forth, how you would allocate them so that people could use them. Okay, now, right. however, if you come to our contemporary period, these systems of government, I would qualify as poor in their characteristics, in their quality. They were poor governance. They didn't really deal with all the things we need. And we're seeing it with COVID-19. You know, the best we have is the World Health Organization, and it clearly hasn't proven to be up to the task for lots of reasons. Maybe it's not sufficiently funded. Maybe it's not sufficiently independently scrutinized. Uh, maybe it's politicized and so forth. Uh, but it's better than not having something. What we really need to talk about now is how to get quality systems of governance to address the kind of things you're talking about, which are one, climate change, which is in its character, not only something that cannot be addressed by single state or even a few states operating their own, it is something that by its character must be addressed on a global level, But second of all, it presents risks, which are risks to all of us. They are um, uh, even species risk. By the way, that's a little bit different than COVID-19. COVID-19 presents global risks, but not necessarily species risks. It presents another risk, which is about quality of life, which is about, um, you know, health and well-being, uh, and which is possibly about, or very much about economy and, and development. But these are what they share is there are things that no state on their own can uh, address, neither to protect itself nor to resolve. So 
that's really the question for me now is on the basis of our complex interdependence, these kind of relationships, this kind of uh, uh, actual dependence, you and me on other sides of the world with people who don't speak the same language but still have the same needs and uh, live subject to the same risks, how do we organize quality governance at a global level? And the answer to that is, uh, the first answer is it's possible that's the very first thing, which is a state of mind, which is an attitude to, to get past the indoctrination of negativity to say it's not possible. It is possible. And then the second is what would be the best way, the best system to construct it. Absolutely. Well, obviously, we come up against the eternal question of power, right, which is going to play a huge role and. You know, as is always the case, those with power don't want to relinquish it, and those without power wish they had more. You know, and so that's Absolutely. you know that's always going to be something that we need to grapple with. And you know, the entire political system, including the democratic political system, um, you know, that's the worst system of all, except for all the others, as someone famously said. Um, yeah, you know, it does not always attract the finest humans. Um, to become leaders, you know, you need to have a certain personality type um, in order to want to have a position as the head of state. Um, and very many people who would be tremendous leaders are precisely the people that would never, ever even attempt it because they don't want to be associated with everything else that one has to do in order to become a leader these days. So that's, there's kind of an inherent flaw in the, in the system. You know, I mean, I, in my view, you know, the less likely you would like to be a leader, the more likely you should be a leader. And the more you would <laughs> wish to be a leader, yeah. the less likely it should be that you become a leader. Um, because that's when it really starts getting dangerous, you know. And so there are always those factors at play. But I think another obstacle, too, of course, is that, um, you know, going back to the question of, you know, people are fearful of losing what they have. Um, I think the relative success of cosmopolitan societies, despite flaws, you know, despite areas where massive improvement remains to, you know, be seen, um, the very success of cosmopolitan societies, cities, and, and entire countries really shows that a, a slow merger of the human race into one single polity is not only possible, but, you know, inherently desirable, you know? At the same time, there's... I would the even argue it's almost inescapable on a few things because there, mm -hmm. there really are going to be existential challenges that compel us to find a way to govern together. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, the threat, though, with increasing cosmopolitanism is losing the very unique cultural attributes that do exist in certain countries. And that's a very, you know, realistic fear. Like we don't want to have a global monoculture that's dominated by, you know, fast food and Hollywood movies. You know, we want to have real food from everywhere and we want to have real movies from everywhere and real books from everywhere and real art from everywhere and real music from everywhere. We want to preserve that the beauty of local culture 
and and belief structures and and stories and and myths from the ages while at the same time promoting the idea that we're all completely reliant on planet earth and that is a challenge there's no doubt about it um but i think really you know you can have your cake and eat it too and things are going to go in this direction whether those who don't want it want it to or not um it's simply the nature of a finite place i.e. Earth, um, sooner or later, you know, we're the first generation that basically knows what's going on in every square meter of the planet. You know, we know what's going on. There's no more, there are no more hidden kingdoms. There are no more hidden Shangri-Las. There are no more places that are completely and utterly unexplored by humans. We know what's there. We're also the first generation to have all knowledge, all human knowledge available at the touch of a fingertip on our computer. You know, an extraordinary yeah. position to be in. Um, with our cell phones, we can call people in every country in the world in, in within seconds, you know. And yet, despite those huge, gigantic steps forward, it doesn't feel like we're more unified. You know, it feels like we're less unified in many respects. And maybe things are beginning to turn now as people, you know, come out onto the streets and so on and so forth. And and these protests in the which started in the United States are now expanding to countries across the world. And they're not just focusing on on police brutality and and deaths in custody, but they're focusing on increasingly broad issues. Um, you know, maybe this is the beginning of something. You know, the next evolutionary step in our in our political evolution. But you know, it's it's how did you? You know, I know for me personally, I started out as the least likely person in the world to have a world centric consciousness. You know, shall we say, I was brought up the most. F- hardcore americana usa rah 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 type kid and um you know a, a, a series of eight or ten like really important events happened you know in my life over a period of years from like age let's say 10 to to 18 which slowly got me in the direction of of being much more internationalist in orientation um I even remember the very last time in my life that I felt a, a truly nationalistic urge, you know, and I was like 16 years old or something. Um, it was during the Winter Olympics, you know, when the United States hockey team beat the Russian hockey team or the Soviet hockey team, you know, and I remember being in a car and just cheering out of the window. But that was like the last time I felt like a truly nationalistic sentiment for anywhere in the world. Um, but what about you? I mean, you were brought up in winnipeg right and um you know not the bastion of internationalism probably so how what's your own journey in that regard i mean how did you become more um world-centric in orientation and what you know what lessons might there be for others in the world that are you know contemplating a similar journey well uh, yeah we are all the products of our uh, backgrounds in different ways, right? Our experiences and so forth. Well, Winnipeg partly uh, did have an effect because it was a uh, largely immigrant society and quite diverse. And I think diversity is part of the uh, equation here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so growing up, certainly I was aware that my neighbors and my best friend and so forth, they all came with different, uh, or mostly their parents had immigrated. A number had been refugees. So they had stories and they had different, they celebrated different things. They had a range of names, a range of languages. Um, and so the kind of myth 
of uh, uh, nationalist reductionism, you know, we and only us and one way, was exposed, you know, from my childhood as simply not being true. There are lots of different um, valid religious views, different ways of seeing things, and and it's interesting. Even it's not only uh, you know bad, but it's uh, or not bad. It's it's actually rich. It's very interesting and pleasant in many mm-hmm. ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's a very simple kind of part of it. But in my high school years, and and I think this is quite important. Uh, I got involved in. I don't even know how I got involved in. I guess it was good teachers and so forth. A series of activities involving um, a few organizations. One was. Um, uh, there was a student parliament, but there was also a student commonwealth um, conference, and there, which was interesting because parliament and the model United Nations and things like that, they were run in competitive and uh, kind of mock aggressive form. We were against somebody. Mm-hmm. We were defending and pursuing our interests. But the commonwealth functioned on a whole different basis, which was consensus decision making and uh, free cooperation. Uh, Almost the same time, I got exposed to a group called the World Federalists, mm-hmm. and I got exposed to them through some scientists who were at the university, and they were involved in something else that had a kind of worldview and you know about, which is the Pugwash uh, conferences and Pugwash mm-hmm. work, which was uh, which is actually a place in Nova Scotia and Canada where scientists would come together and reflect on challenges of the world, particularly at the time. Uh, after the Second World War, um, you know, in the face of nuclear proliferation and so forth. So uh, these different groups really opened my mind to say, when I looked out at the world, well, there are actually better ways to engage, maybe interesting, maybe constructive ways. And it's not only competitive win-lose paradigm. So that that was hugely influential. And I guess around the same time, I started seeing this kind of intersection between justice questions, fairness questions, where I did grow up in Winnipeg, a lot of issues with indigenous people, which, you know, was just visibly not fair. People lived in unequal environments, you know, inadequate housing, not good schooling and so forth. So a lot of these things kind of coalesced pretty early in high school and early university years. And, And from that, I could start to see, well, it must be possible that if other people started to think this way, we could actually construct uh, a better global governance. And the, and the world federalists said it explicitly. Right. And they're still around, the, the world federalists, I believe. Well, well, they. I mean, I, I think they were started by some Italians about 100 years ago, but uh, they're definitely strong. I'm still... 40, uh, I can tell you 40 years later, more than 40 years later, I'm still a member of the World Federalists of Canada. Um, and you know what, what they are advocating, they're very active at the United Nations. You started this program talking about some of the challenges. Just today, the World Federalists of Canada issued a statement condemning the United States uh, of America for its attacks on the International Criminal Court. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some of the investigators who are individually now being affected happen to be Canadian citizens, by the way. And so that's an interesting thing is that one of the questions, which is really germane to our discussion is, so who stands up for these people? 
you know, it's a nice mm-hmm. ideal to talk about oneness of the world and so forth. But at the same time, in the absence of institutions of governance at the global level that are effective in, for example, protecting everybody's human rights, the question comes, so who does protect people? And so far, we rely on the state. But by the way, we rely on the state not as a necessarily fair and definitely not necessarily democratic institution, but really just a body of power. And you know right. that's a really big shortcoming because some states, you know, that power is abused utterly by individuals who may be unscrupulous and so forth. But even in the democratic state, in my state, Canada, we have enormous shortcomings too. So trying to kind of make that leap, not one of consciousness, but of effectiveness in governance from the existing state system with its flaws to something that's reliable at a global level, that's a real challenge. Yeah. It truly is. It truly is. And, you know, another thing that, you know, uh, you know, besides sort of perceptions and and philosophical outlooks um, that certainly, I think, reinforced both of our individual journeys towards, you know, more world centric perspectives was the decision that we both took um, at, at young ages to. um go live in other countries uh, for long sustained periods of time. In fact, I left my country of birth more than 35 years ago now uh, permanently and have lived, you know, in, I don't know, I don't even know how many countries I've lived in really 14, 15 countries since then. Happy to go to another one soon, you know? Um, And, and that's a real luxury position to be in. I fully understand that, you know, I mean the, the, percent of the human race that lives outside of its country of birth remains very, very small. And um, there's a reason for that. And of those that have migrated, you know, the several hundred million that have migrated, two, three, four, five percent of the human race, the overwhelming majority of those did it out of economic or political necessity, um, either to escape, you know, a, a despotic regime or to, you know, escape poverty. Um, and then right. there's this small little sliver of which you and I are a part, um, who thought we could get a better education elsewhere, thought it would be more interesting, thought it would be more fun, thought it would be, you know, more, uh, give us a better opportunity to uh, bring about positive political change, um, so on and so forth. So w- we are a tiny sliver. We do need to, you know, acknowledge that of people that have voluntarily left our countries of birth to live either temporarily or permanently um, outside of it. Um, and that for sure has, um, uh, you know, shaped both of us in terms of our understanding that really at, at its core, yeah, there's certain sort of superficial differences between people, um, but at its core, uh, the, those are so minor compared to the similarities, you know, and we can take the most extreme examples of, of what would be superficially perceived as as different, you know, so white Western males compared to, you know, recently contacted indigenous tribes in the Amazon to, you know, Iraqi, Iraqi politicians, you know, in Baghdad to, um, you know, Buddhist monks in Nepal and, and every other group in the world, you know, and we have interactions and engagements with those types of people all the time as equals, 
and and it's beautiful and we love it and i wouldn't have it any other way and there's nothing scary about it there's nothing i mean yeah sometimes it's scary when somebody does something weird but generally speaking that you know it has nothing to do with where they're from or what they look like um or even what their religion or belief structure may be um it's quite simple and quite pleasurable to have all of these relations with people all across the world and that just continues to reinforce my own personal um perspective that you know we need more unity and the the basis for creating this unity is already there we just have to see it you know so how about you what do you think about that so i sh- i'm similarly aware of uh the extraordinary privilege we have had you and me and we share and uh i'm also aware that it is partly a northern white privilege uh, it's also something which has earned criticism. You know, those who dislike now the kind of elitist cosmopolitan internationalists, as some are called, some call it, or liberal internationalists, globalists, because that has been um, evidently a privileged group. While many, many other people who would like to share that kind of uh, uh, exposure and experiences and pleasure um, and so forth, they are, uh, it's not within reach. And worse than that, they are repressed or suppressed. But what's really interesting beyond that, because I'm not sure that we necessarily want to imagine a world where kind of everyone is running hither and thither and, um, you know, God knows what happens environmentally and so forth. I'm all in favor of, you know, free movement and so forth. But um, I think what's really interesting in the last 30 years has been the telecommunications revolution Mm -hmm. because what now has happened and and you mentioned earlier in this conversation about how these just in the last couple of weeks, these amazing um, instantaneous popular uh, protests uh, as a result of the uh, murder of George Floyd um, are now replicated all around the world. You know, how does that happen so fast? And the answer is because today people around the world can see this. They can see the other mm-hmm. and they can see that those myths you talked about at the beginning are myths, that we're not all that different, that we are actually facing some similar vulnerabilities, but maybe also some shared ambitions that we do as humans love truth and justice and we face fears of existential nature and so forth. So, you know, what's interesting now is that uh, many people, you don't need to travel around the world to be able to see all of this anymore. It's like long ago, before a lot of these um, uh, opportunities existed, people used to travel over long, long periods of time to go and visit, you know, the Greek, uh, the uh, Athens and so forth. Uh, and that, now we're able to quickly see all of this. And that helps us um, with the global consciousness. And that consciousness is absolutely rudimentary to engaging in a politics of oneness. Uh, So in my my view, by the way, I actually consider the COVID-19 crisis a sort of blessing because it has drawn back the curtains on so many things we kind of all knew were happening you know, the enormous inequities 
uh, economically, um, the um, institutionalized racism, uh, you know, the silliness of petty nationalism and, and so much else. I mean, just the fascinating conversations now about budgetary issues, the whole defund movements. Right. I mean, they're right. really about how do we allocate our resources to address different social and security problems. That is governance. That's what, what it's about. So I, I, I'm actually quite buoyed by all of this. And, and I'm optimistic because all sorts of people around the world are able to, dream, to reach this conclusion, you know, just be, by seeing it essentially on their screen or on their phone. Now, at the same time, and this is the really big problem, which you touched upon, is that um, a lot of government, not governance, but government, the people in power who are actually wielding that power, um, are not the most responsible, are not the best and the brightest. And this is, uh, and, and worse than that, are actually abusive. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and here, I think this is where we all have to reflect on, on our politics, each and every one of us. And I think a lot of people, including, I have to say, my own generation, a lot of my peers, we kind of chose to disengage from much active politics, which we maybe found not as interesting, maybe even a little dirty or things like that. But we, in fact, kind of surrendered it to others. And I think really now there's a challenge for some of these reasons such as the existential challenge of global climate change or just well-being in terms of things like COVID-19 or even aesthetic things like how well we live in a neighborhood and, you know, with homeless people or not homeless people and how do we get along. I think now the challenge is one of our responsibility in political terms. Do we engage? And that must mean not just locally, not just in our immediate neighborhood or our own country, but globally. And I think there's, there is a kind of revolution, uh, maybe that's too strong a word, but a fairly rapid change on the horizon where, uh, for example, the dysfunctions of the United Nations, for example, the, 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 the General Assembly or the Security Council or the World Trade Organization, we could talk about many of them, mm-hmm. are just not fit for purpose or are the purpose they're fit for is, is antiquated. And so now we have to rapidly, if we really want to engage with the challenges, we have to rapidly leap politically. And, uh, uh, but I'm hopeful we can do it. And by the way, I don't believe that that means, which is a crucial thing you observe, Scott, that it's not a zero-sum game. It doesn't mean we give up our belongings and our identities at the local level. We have to think not in a kind of a, uh, a pyramidal reductionist, linear uh, terms. We have to think in kind of Venn diagrams, intersecting relationships. You know, we have to think complexly and we have to create systems which allow for multiple identities, multiple relationships. There are more and more people in this world who maybe earn an income from something they're doing one place, you know, have family relations in another place, um, have, uh, you know, products are produced one place, are consumed in another, the financing is in a third. I mean, we have to think of those terms, uh, and and we're just not there yet. Absolutely. And I think if, you know, you can kind of boil down the current developments in the world in the last few weeks to, I, I think, kind of two basic concepts. And the first is 
people are no longer willing to accept things just the way they are, you know? Like there's been so Absolutely. many people going, oh, that's just the way it is. You know, that's human nature. It's human nature to be greedy. It's human nature to be selfish. It's human nature to be racist. Sorry, it isn't, you know? It's human nature to allow homelessness to continue to exist on our streets, et cetera, et cetera. You know, so people are finally kind of getting to the point, well, no, that's not just the way it is. We need to really fundamentally reorient ourselves, you know? I mean, it's just, I mean, how can it be that by virtue of us being born in one of us in the United States, one of us in Canada, on day one, we automatically had 60 times the amount of wealth as somebody born the same day in sub-Saharan Africa, you know? And that continues to this day, and it actually worsens, you know? If I can just say, that point you just observed is one of the things which, until 20, 30 years ago, it wasn't so immediately visible to many people. But one of the things that's interesting now is people born in uh, Yemen, the new generation, young generation, they can see pretty quickly that, you know, they are on the lousy end of the stick. Right. That right, they are right. not enjoying the possibilities and so forth. And worse than that, they understand that there is foreign funding of a military industrial complex that is literally bombing them uh, and destroying their society. Absolutely. And that's, and that brings me in fact, perfectly to my second, you know, concept, which is ever growing numbers of people know that it can be so much better, you know, whether it's the, you know, the younger generation in Yemen or African Americans in the United States and everyone in between, um, more and more people have read enough, have seen enough, have understood enough that they can see that the potential for our species and for our planet is so much higher than what the vast majority of people are actually being able to enjoy and participate in. And that's leading to, you know, extremely high levels of frustration. And those at the top don't see this sufficiently, you know. Um, And we really need to acknowledge that point that, you know, now is not the time to give up and to resign ourselves to this world of inequality, this world of, you know, thousands of nuclear weapons pointed in all sorts of different directions, you know, this world of rampant torture and political imprisonment and all of these other crimes against ordinary people. The world can be so much better still, even with all of the problems that we are confronting, global ones and national ones. And I, I think, you know, in, a, in my optimistic moments that, the numbers of people who are recognizing that and playing out their own lives in such a way to facilitate that as quickly as possible is growing at massively quick rates. And so that's, that's, you know, what we can hold on to as, as, you know, hopeful sort of perspectives. And at the same time, you know, there's always going to be this constant evolving struggle between those who see everything as the whole and those who see parts of the whole as their own little kingdom and their own little jurisdictional playground. And that's, of course, the nature of the nation-state system that we were born into and that continues to be the dominant way of political organization in the world. And as I've said frequently before, you know, we it's more complex than this, but essentially you can chart the beginnings of the current system back to the treaties of Westphalia in 16... 16- 48 following the 30 year war in europe we essentially have that same system in place now 307 what is that 
you know, almost 400 years um, later. Um, and yet, what else do we have in place that's 400 years old now? Not very many things, right? Pretty much every other thing in the world has changed completely from how it was in 1648. But the structures that we've decided to organize ourselves around are still, you know, very much in place. So it, it really is, in my view, you know, you know, we don't have the, the blueprint. We don't have the the golden answer. We don't have guaranteed, you know, recipes for success about how we should organize ourselves politically. But, you know, hopefully discussions like this will get people thinking that maybe there are other ways and maybe there are more unified ways possible. And maybe there are ways to participate in and, and be part of um, the lives of and cultures of people from everywhere. Um, and in so doing, we start building up the global civilization that we already have um, into one that's also a political civilization in which all of us participate and in which all of us have an interest. Because if we care about people anywhere, we have to care about what's happening politically in those countries. And we have to understand the power structures that exist in those countries and the need to have a common framework for viewing what the world should be able to expect at the, from the individual level. And that's just the basic protection of their human rights. And start with that. You know, we already have a pretty good system in place. Use that as the guiding principle to begin thinking more deeply about how we could move towards something that was closer to a world parliament based on global voting and, you know, principles of world citizenship without necessarily losing anything that you may have today. So any, any clothing closing thoughts before we wrap it up today, John? Well, I, I think those were good thoughts that you already shared. Um, I, I, I would like to reiterate, you know, one of your main points that, uh, this is, uh, this myth about having to give up or lose, um, you know, and we hear this often around this term of sovereignty, which mm -hmm. is often invoked often by people who can't define it, aren't quite sure what it means. Um, but uh, if we think about it more as uh, not only jurisdiction, as um, lawful authority and scope of authority, but also responsibility, then we can certainly think that, well, there are degrees of that. You know, we can have our authority at our local level with our town councils and our communities. And so we can construct that in kind of concentric circles of relationships and belonging. And this is not uh, subtractive. This is additive. We gain more security. We gain more well-being uh, and so forth by, by these linkages. So the, the myth absolutely has to be exposed in this kind of simplistic really um, 19th century invocations of notions like sovereignty must be uh, really uh, dismissed. And we need to uh, rethink in, in this uh, 21st century, even 22nd century, you know, for the next generations, how the world is with, with the speed of technology, how the world is going to be uh, developed uh, in the coming generations. And for that, if you look around the world, it, it, it's quite clear that we absolutely can reorganize ourselves. This is within our power. This is, uh, I mean, our natural capacity, our creativity, our human um, nature as a social being. Uh, we, we, we have to decide to do it. 
And part of that attitude, and this is really the last thing I'll say, and it may sound very um, optimistic and simplistic, but uh, we, we have to open our hearts. This is partly an emotional question is what I want to get at. It's not just intellectual and kind of technical. There are big, there are technical issues. You know, there are um, redesigning structures and how they will work and, you know, good governance and all the rest of it. Yeah, there's a lot of detail in that. But a very big part of it is what is our attitude to this? Um, and that's really, you know, why, why racism as it's being addressed now is so odious. Because racism is a political project based on really a terrible concept, which is, which is that you and I are totally different and that you and I are opposed and that there's a, a, a hierarchy and a competitive character which requires us uh, to be opposed. That kind of thinking must be dismissed, and we need to adopt a different attitude, a constructive attitude, but a, a, I will say a loving attitude, where we can say of ourselves, of our families, our neighbors, our communities, and so forth, that we are able to see all of the opportunity and value in empowering the other, in creating uh, mutual benefit. Uh, uh, Amatya Sen writes about capacitization, but to me, it's even more than that. It's about valuing everyone. And that's, by the way, the core of human rights, which is about universal respect for human dignity as a shared characteristic and value of the human being. And I think that's not just ideal, I, I, a matter of ideals. That's something that can become very concrete and real. And, uh, I think we're, you know, I'm a bit optimistic what's happening these days. I know things can go the other way. There's a lot of risk, but uh, I am I'm, I'm believe that these multiple leaps we've talked about, a leap of consciousness, you know, a leap of kind of organizational uh, relations, but also um, uh, and a political leap, but these can be achieved uh, in, in real time near term in this generation, the next generation. Absolutely true. And, and, you know, if all of us were to wake up every day and say, good morning, planet love, we would have a different world. There's no question about it because it's really all about that in the end, you know, and, you know, the bottom line is what feels better, loving or hating, you know, and I don't think a lot of people would think that hating feels better than loving. And everybody's got the capacity for massive amounts of love. And yet people are even afraid to talk about it, you know. Um, but that's what it's going to take. Love of the human race, love of our incredibly unique planet, unique anywhere in the entire universe, um, and love of life. And you get more love, you get better results. So that's certainly what we're shooting for now and, and into the future. So, John Packer, Newberger Jessen, Professor of International Conflict Resolution, Faculty of Law of the University of Ottawa in Canada, thank you so much for joining us today for episode 23 of Jointly Venturing, and I wish you all the best in everything you do, and hopefully we'll have you back on here someday soon. Thanks a lot, Scott. It's been a great pleasure. Okay, well, that was episode 23, folks, and episode 24 is coming up in a week or so, and we will have with us 
the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Internally Displaced Persons, Cecilia Jimenez, speaking to us from Davao City in the Philippines. So until then, take care, subscribe, tell your friends, joint the venturing is the only way to go. Take care. Bye.